Father, indeed, we are poor and needy. We are, O Lord, weak and wounded. We are sick and sore. We praise You that You stand ready to save us full of pity, love, and power. Father, we do resonate in our hearts with the song we just sung, I need Thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like mine, like Thine can peace afford. I need Thee, O oh Lord, I need Thee every hour. I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. And, and Lord, as we come, we don't come with good in our hands. We, we come with garments, though, washed white in the blood of Jesus. We come with nothing in our hands. Simply to the cross do we cling. As the deer pants for the water brook, so our souls long for You, O Lord. And I pray Your blessing upon us this morning. I pray that You would use me to help us see our need for You, our dependence upon You, and that we would indeed, God, not, not just with our heads, not just with our mouths, but with our heart, truly believe that I need You every hour in fact, we need You every minute, every moment. And so, Lord, be with us and among us and stir our hearts this morning to these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a few months ago, Avon and I had a, a discussion with a, a friend of ours. <clears throat> Happened to be over at our house. And in the course of our, our conversation, uh, we came to see that a friend's view of things are a little bit different than our view of things. And uh, we have such a relationship with this one that um, we, we began to confront a little bit and to challenge uh, our friend and, and um, tell this one to, to live a life of desperation. And our friend was really content with how things are and was, was ready just to continue on as they were. And throughout our conversation, I remember kept kept telling this one, I said, you're not desperate. I said, you're not desperate. If you're desperate, you, you, you would lay aside those things. You, you would pursue a different course. In fact, I don't think you see the danger in front of you. You think it's okay. You don't really care. Instead, you just, you just want your pleasures. And I said, you're, you're not desperate. So that was, that was like my mantra that I, that I did. And then Yvonne and I were processing going to bed that night. And she said, you know, you, you kept talking to her friend and saying, you're not desperate. Well, she said, Steve, I don't know if you're too desperate either. <laughs> and, uh, she, and she included herself too, so it wasn't just, all, wasn't just all, all me. But she reminded me of this chart that we have in our bathroom. Maybe some of you have this chart, maybe some of you don't. It's a weight chart. And uh, we've, been, we've been tracking our weight for how long? <laughs> maybe, I don't know, a long time. And, and my, my chart is like, like going like this, like over the past months and years. Okay, now the idea is that the, the weight chart should go like, like, like this, like slowly sustainable, but mine, is, mine has been going like this. And she said, Steve, I see, I see what you eat in between meals and the, the cookies. And, and, 
She's totally right. And who am I to point my finger at our friend and say, you're not desperate when I myself am struggling with my weight? In fact, full disclosure, every, every Sunday, um, I, never, I never choose what I'm going to wear on Sunday mornings. So this is, this is what Yvonne chose for me today, except my pants are a little bit different today than the ones she, she put out for me. So I, I need your help in that. If you get my drift, the... I couldn't quite fit into those. So I'm struggling with that and just thinking about desperation. And so I've been thinking about this idea about desperation. How, how desperate am I? Um, particularly with, with food or thinking about, about that. And so what, what I want to do this morning is even preach a message on desperation. It's really got me to think about the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Dependence upon the Lord is all over the Bible. So before we dig into the Psalm of the Saints next Sunday... We'll be Psalm 122 next Sunday if you want to read ahead in advance. I encourage you to do that. This morning, I'm going to preach a message entitled Desperation and Dependence. And I do believe that these two words encompass all of our Christian life. Desperation and dependence. See, because when you come to God, you must come with desperation. You must come looking to Him to supply your every need. And when you walk with God, you must walk with dependence. Trusting Him every hour of the day, every hour I need Thee, every moment I need Thee. So, when you come to God, you must come with desperation. When you walk with God, you must walk with dependence. And my burden from my message this morning is that all of us would have a heightened awareness of our own desperation before God. A heightened practice of living in dependence upon the Lord moment by moment, hour by hour. Now, unlike... The vast majority of my messages, we're not going to open the Bible and just camp someplace. I really like to do that. The Bible is a, is really a minefield and when we, we open someplace, we can dig and dig and dig and dig. Like next week, we'll be Psalm 122. You can just sit there, you can park there, and I'll pull in other things, but basically it's going to work through that. Today is going to be totally different. Um, instead we're going to look at a bunch of different texts. Okay, I'm going to have you turn there so you get your Bibles ready. Okay, for those of you having a difficult time, Finding out where you where you are in the Bible, I'm going to give you pew numbers, page numbers from the pew Bibles there. So if you want to cheat a little bit or be helped to go faster, you can do that as well. Um, one thing that would help you memorize the books of the Bible. It doesn't take too long. If I got a song for that, we can help you with that. But if you're if you're not there, I'll just help you with that. My first question for you is this: Are you desperate? Are you desperate? I want to begin this morning looking at the Gospel of Luke. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. In your pew Bibles, that's page 62 of the New Testament. Okay, the Old Testament, pages 1 through, I'm not sure, 600 or 800, something like that. And then the New Testament starts over about three quarters of your way through the Bible. Luke chapter 18. We find Jesus here telling a parable to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous. In terms of my message this morning, you might say that they displayed no desperation in their coming to God. Rather, they came with an arrogant self-dependence. And Jesus seeks to put things in perspective. Verse 10, Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not unlike other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, that is the second one who was beating his breast, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I trust this is a familiar parable for many of you, right? You can see these two men. The first came trusting his own righteousness. He believed that God was pleased with him because he was so good and so devoted to him. In fact, thank God for making him so good. But there was a pride there that Jesus tried to get at, right? He trusted in himself that he was righteous, verse 9. But the second knew that he could do nothing. That's why he was beating his breast. That's this anguish for his sin. That's why he didn't even lift his eyes up to the temple, but was over here. He knew he needed God's mercy and he was beating his breast, looking down and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I would contend that one of these men was desperate and one of them wasn't. It was a desperation that cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's how we come to Jesus. We come in desperation. Well, down in verse 18. And by the way, we're just going to see example after example after example today. In verse 18, we see another one who wasn't coming in desperation. A rich young ruler questioned him saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right there, you see this man's error. He thinks he can do something to inherit eternal life. And he simply didn't know what he needed to do. He said, Jesus, what what do I need to do? Because he's done a lot. We shall see, right? Verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Right there, right? You're not good. It's not something you can do. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not... Murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And you can even see his arrogance there. You, you can see his self-sufficiency. He, he believed, like the, the, the Pharisee, that he was worthy in God's sight. Because he was a commandment keeper. He kept all these commandments. Even from his youth up, from a very small age, he kept them all. But Jesus stretches him really to the end of himself. And Jesus said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. I believe that Jesus, by this statement, was trying to bring him to a point of desperation that, that just says, I got all this. Can I, can I really do that? Am I really desperate for Jesus? For this man, it meant selling everything. And, and unfortunately, he never came to a point of desperation. Instead of forsaking everything in this life to gain eternal life, he tightly held on to his possessions. And Jesus knew how hard it was for him. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's the call of the kingdom. It's hard for the rich to enter. That's why Luke said in, in chapter 6, Blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Because when you don't have anything, it's easy to give up. But when you have a lot, it's hard to give up. Luke is a lot into these possessions. Even he says in Luke chapter 14, 
Verse 33, no one can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. And the idea there is, is that we've got to come to Jesus with, with open hands and say, all that I have is yours. Desperate. Riches in this world are like an anchor that hold us down to the world. God requires that we let go of them. So I'm picturing this scene of a movie. Um, I've not seen this movie uh, because it doesn't exist. Okay, I'm just picturing this scene in my, in my mind of this movie. Certainly there are movies out there like this. Certainly I've seen some things close to this. But I, I don't know, I'm picturing this man in his yacht out in the, the middle of the sea someplace. And he is uh, sailing his yacht and then a storm comes up and tips it over. And he's on the keel of the boat and somehow he could uh, pronounce his SOS and the Coast Guard got it and they're, they're coming out to get him in his helicopter and this man is kind of on the heel of, of it, the keel of his boat and trying to figure out how did this helicopter come and, and let a lifeline down and, and in this man's hand is a briefcase and his briefcase is full of gold. Just packed full. So he's got a briefcase, you know, whatever. 18 by 24 travel, but, but weighing a lot of, a lot his possessions. And, and as he tries to catch this, this thing coming down and tries to hold his briefcase with this thing coming up, he, he's not strong enough. What does he have to do? He's got to either let go of his gold and let the rope carry him up or hold on to the gold and drown along with it. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be desperate. You've got to be willing just to give up your gold so that you can be saved. And this rich young ruler, Jesus called him to give up his gold. He's not willing to. Instead, he chose to perish with his gold. And Jesus said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to get into the kingdom of God. Right? Because the wealthy are self-sufficient. Wealthy don't, people don't need to ask others for help. They, in their own sufficiency, can get everything. And so Jesus says you need to be desperate Forsake your riches and follow after the Lord. And that's what Jesus spoke about in the kingdom parables, right? There's this picture, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field, right? Forsakes everything he has and clings to Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Listen, right? To sell everything's a desperate measure, isn't it? Phil, I'm sure in your financial counseling, you've had people who've got all their money in stocks just sell it all and buy gold, right? Yeah, very desperate. It's like something, something's not, not right there, okay? And to the world, that says something's not right with Christians who forsake all and follow Jesus. But such is our, our desperation. And, and when the disciples heard how hard it was, they said, verse 26, who can be saved? And God said that things are impossible with people are possible with God. See, God's the one that makes us become desperate people. God is the one that causes us to see that His treasure is worth it all. God is the one who causes us to see that His pearl is worth everything that we have. So when you come to God, you must come with desperation. And we see another example here in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, okay, this is down from Jerusalem, about 20 miles away to the east. He said a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what, what this was. 
Because he couldn't see, he needed to talk with others. Well, what's going on? And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and, and he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way where they were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept on crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So you got to picture the scene. Jesus with a big crowd approaching the city of Palms is what Jericho is known as. And there was this blind man. Everybody knew. He always sat at the entrance to the city. And he hears the scuttlebutt of the crowds going by and he says, what, what's going on? And they say, well, Jesus is coming. And he, he thinks in his mind, Jesus, I've heard that name before. That's where everyone was going out in the Jordan River to be baptized right, by, by John. And, and they were going out with Jesus too. And they're, they're following Jesus. And, and I've heard about Him. And so he says, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. And he was yelling so loud that even among the crowd noise, everyone could hear him. And, and, and you know, this is just a, a blind guy. He's like the poor who always begs. He's like the down and out of society. They were saying, shh, shh, shh. We want Jesus coming to our city. We don't want him to see the riffraff of the city. Shh. And what did he do all, all the more? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! And Jesus may have been walking over there. It's not like he's even shouting to Jesus. He's just shouting out, hoping that Jesus would hear him and that he would come. That, my friends, is desperation. And that's the sort of attitude we need to have to, to come to Jesus. You know, I know that when people are sick, they're desperate. I know some people go on an anxiety exotic diets to heal their cancer. I don't blame them. They're sick and maybe this diet's going to help. Wonderful. Uh, people will travel to foreign lands to have some experimental surgery that's yet to be approved of the FDA in our country. They'll do it in another country. I've known people who've turned to the occult to try to be cured of their disease. People when they're sick are, are desperate. I have a family friend of our families who was diagnosed with, I'm going to get this, wrong here, but I'm trying. Primary sclerosing cholangitis. Close enough. PSC. Primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's the same disease Walter Payton had. So I usually say Walter Payton's disease, right? Anyway, she was sick for years until she finally received a transplant a couple years ago. Um, but during her years of sickness, um, in order, it has something to do with uh, like hardening of the liver or a liver disease. And in order to live, she needed to have a, a liver transplant. But I remember that some of the things that she ate was like this green substance that smelled like seaweed. I mean, it came in this it came in this bottle of powder, and you kind of smell it and go, oh, oh, <laughs> is what you do. And uh, she would take that, and that would be her nutrient. Because like it's, I don't know, it's already digested or bypasses the liver or something, and so it really helps. If she would eat food, she'd become sick, you know. So that's really what what she ate. Now I remember I had a teaspoonful of this stuff kind of stirred around, and I could barely, I could barely drink any of it. It was awful stuff. I, I don't know what it was, but it was awful. And yet, she drank it regularly, and she drank it joyfully. And to her, that taste was a taste of life. Because that's what she needed to live. 
And she would do it because she knew that's what she needed to live. And this blind man was desperate. And he knew in order to see that he would have to cry out to get Jesus to come and see him. And so he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I just say, this is the sort of cry that God loves to hear. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he brought, be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Ah, oh, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Now here we see faith as integral to being desperate. In fact, faith, I think, is in some sense the, the fundamental cause of this desperation. That people believe that Jesus is my only hope. And so this man cried out in desperation. And, by the way, I think one of the reasons why God loves us so is that when someone who's desperate has no resources cries out to God and God saves them and helps them, who gets the glory? Certainly not them. Think about the rich young ruler. If he said, well, I kept all the commandments. I did all this. Look at that. If we, if we get there by, by keeping the commandments, that's glory to us. But if we get there by God's work alone, it's glory to Him. That's why God loves desperation. We have, we have no, no hope. Even... Luke 19, Zechariah, Zacchaeus rather. Right? I mean, this man was desperate, trying to see Jesus coming along the way. As he entered Jericho, he was passing through. Chapter 19, verse 2. And there was a man, his name Zac Zac Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. Right? He was one who owned it all. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature, I can relate. And so he ran on ahead of him and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through. And think about the desperation of that, to climb in a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And of course, Jesus said, come down, I'm going to go into your house. And salvation entered the house of Zacchaeus in some measure because he was a desperate man. When you come to God, you mean to come with desperation. That's how people came to Jesus. They were, they were desperate. So let's turn now to Mark chapter 1. See some more examples of this. That's page 27 of the New Testament in your pew Bibles. Here we find Jesus near the beginning of His ministry. He called some disciples, begun to preach and teach the people, begun to mingle with the crowds. And we pick up the story in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. The leper who came to Jesus beseeching Him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man's got desperation written all over him. I mean, first of all, he's a leper. In those days, lepers were banned to the outer portion of society. They, society didn't let them come in lest they spread their ugly disease to everyone who was there. And you only transgress social customs and you only endure the people scoffing at you when you're desperate. Second, he came up beseeching him. ESV says imploring him. NIV says he begged him. You only beg when you're desperate. And this man's posture was upon his knees. He was saying, please, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And maybe he was down at his feet. He's just saying, Jesus, Jesus, please make me clean. That's total desperation. That's how people always come to Jesus. And we see that Jesus, of course, loves that. Move with compassion. Just stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. When you come to Jesus, desperate, he'll cleanse. 
Well, we see some more desperate people in the beginning of chapter 2. When he come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, right? Just a crowded place. And they came bringing him with bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. But being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above. And when they dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, what drives anyone to do this? I mean, if you think about this, this is crazy. If I had a paralytic and I was like with, with, with three other guys and we're bringing this, this man who's, who's having you bringing him in and there's a crowd there, I'm going to just start tapping some shoulders and just saying, um, excuse me, we need, to, we need to get up front. We need to see Jesus. We need to. But apparently they weren't letting him or something they couldn't see in. And so these men were so desperate that they carried this man up to the roof, dug a hole in the roof, and then figured out with ropes and stuff how to, how to bring him down and lower him right in front of Jesus. That takes a lot of desperation. It is desperation. Again, we see this theme driven by faith. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. There it is. And then he goes on and heals the paralytic. But I want you to see there's this connection with, with faith. I, I think these men knew that their buddy could be healed. They just needed to get to him. And so they, they would do anything to get there. I mean, there's the desperation, right? To, to, to say, oh, well, I, I know this has got words of life and I know there's a place where God's moving. I'm going to be there and, and do anything that it takes. When the heart is willing, the feet are swift is what I like to say. And when the heart knows that Jesus has got the healing power. We're going to do anything, anything to get to Jesus. Anything, even digging a hole through the roof will do it. They're great pictures for us of what it means to come to Christ, right? We need to, need to see in Jesus uh, the one who's going to cure us, the one who's going to help us. See in urgency. See, see no barrier too big to be able to tackle to get there. All right, let's see some more examples. Matthew chapter 9, that's page 7. Of the New Testament, Matthew chapter nine, and by the way, I, we could just go through the whole life of Jesus. I'm just giving you a sample of how desperate people were in coming to Jesus. Chapter nine, verse eighteen, we see two examples of two desperate people. One is a, a father, and one is a woman. Verse eighteen, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him, and said, "My daughter has just died, but come." And lay your hand on her and she will live. It's pretty desperate, right? You can feel for the father. It's difficult to lose a child, certainly. This child, we find out from other places, was 12 years old. But to come and ask Jesus to raise her from the dead, that's desperation. Yep, that's what Jesus loves to see. And so verse 19, Jesus got up, began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And in the middle of this story, you've sandwiched in the story about this woman. We'll get back to the child. We see a desperate woman in verse 20. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. For 12 years, she had a bleeding problem of some type. Luke tells us that nobody was able to heal her. And yet, desperate as she was, she turned to her one last hope was Jesus. 
She believed Jesus could heal her. In fact, if she could just touch the touch just the edge of his garment, I'd be healed. That was her faith. That was her belief. That was her trust. Her faith drew her to this desperate act. And Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. There it is. Your faith has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. Just her faith in Jesus, to, to, to know that Jesus can solve my problems. And Jesus can help me. Just touching the fringe of his garment. And Jesus, willing, saw the desperation of this woman and her faith. Healed her. And so likewise also raised the girl from the dead. 23. When Jesus came into the official's house, saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. Right. In other words, saw the funeral procession starting. He said, leave the girl alone. She's not died, but asleep. They began laughing at him. And when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took the girl by the hand. The girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. I just say over and over and over again through the Gospels, you see the same pattern. People have some kind of great need in their life. They're desperate to get any kind of help they can. Or like this woman, they go to doctors for years and years, 12 years, never being able to solve her problem. So they come to Jesus thinking, maybe, perhaps, I believe He can solve my problems. And Jesus always exceeds their expectations. He heals them of their diseases. He makes them whole. He forgives their sin. He touches. He brings them back into society. He cleanses them. And as you say, that's a great picture of what it means to come to Christ. For anyone to come to Christ, at some point, we need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to feel the desperation within our souls. We need to feel the weight of sin upon our shoulder. And that we got this burden and it needs to be taken off. And who can take it off? And we need to come to the point where we realize that we just can't take it off. Where this burden is too heavy for us and it is weighing us down. We're trying to get rid of it. Maybe we're trying the path of righteousness to walk righteously, but that sin is always there. Or maybe we just know it's there. We just, we got to solve this problem somehow. And in desperation, right, we need to cry out to Jesus in faith that He will believe us, seeking His forgiveness, calling upon His grace, pleading for His mercy, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're willing, you can make me cleansed. And Jesus forgives those who come and seek such forgiveness. And Jesus, I'd say, loves to answer such petitions. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus loves, and the Father loves repentant sinners. That's why the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came back home, he, God loves when those kind of people come to Him. I mean, this is the heart of God. What is the heart of God? Is to, is to see sinners turn from the way, confess their sin, and be cleansed through the blood of Jesus. That's what He loves. And all the healing miracles in the New Testament demonstrate this. But it's not just the New Testament. We go to the Old Testament as well about living a desperate life. Let's go to Second Chronicles 33. It's page 340 of your Old Testament. Second Chronicles are big, long historical books just before Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. Second Chronicles 33 puts us near the end of Judah's history as a nation before they go into exile into Babylon, and here is Manasseh. He led the nation of Israel into all sorts of evil, built high places for pagan worship. That Hezekiah's father had torn down these wicked places, but Manasseh put them up. He built altars for the Baals and the Asherim, right? Pagan deities, encouraged the people to worship them. He sacrificed his sons as religious offerings to the gods. 
He engaged in witchcraft and divinations. And for 55 years, the nation had just turned into decadence. And let's pick up the story in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So there's God is speaking, extending his hand, and they're not getting his attention. And so God gets their attention, which, by the way, is the way that God works many times. Is that he, he calls out and people refuse, and he calls out and people refuse, he calls out and people refuse. And so he brings some kind of tragedy in their life, and they go, I need help. And gets glory, then he brings them back to himself. And that's exactly what God is doing here. Therefore, because they paid no attention, verse 11, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. Notice the king of Assyria didn't just, just happen to say, oh, maybe we can go against them. No, it's God bringing the tribulation in Manasseh's life. And they captured Manasseh with hooks. That's either hooks in his nose or hooks in his mouth. Sometimes they've been known, even the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, when they captured, Habakkuk talks about this, to capture them with a hook right through the jaw. Right? And then you just let around like a, uh, like, a, like a cow or a pig. Awful, awful stuff. This imprisonment was terrible. And they bound him, here's the king, with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. Verse 12, And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is probably the narrative of the most surprising conversion in all of the Old Testament. Here we have Manasseh, the worst of all kings in Judah, leading not himself astray only, but using his power and authority to lead a whole nation astray not just for a little bit of time, months or weeks, but for 55 years he led them astray. He was paying for his wickedness, taken away by the Assyrian army with hooks in his mouth, and there he was in Babylon in the depths of his sin, in the depths of this dirty prison cell. And it says that he was humble. He was repentant. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him brought him back. It was unknown, right? You capture a king from a foreign land, you don't let him back. But he let him go back to Jerusalem. God restored the kingdom to him. And you read the rest of the chapter, you see he brought forth fruits from his repentance. He, he reformed Israel as much as he could, but they had so far gone that his reformations really couldn't stick. And so they just kept on going, eventually leading to their exile. But he was a changed man. But catch what it took to change him. It took a prison in Babylon to change him. And so likewise, God does with us. He'll take us to a prison in Babylon until He gets our attention and changes us. It happens time after time. Take us to the brink of despair. And I just ask you this. Have you come to a point of desperation in your life? Maybe you're here and never reached that point at all. Maybe, maybe you're here and kind of been cruising right along and, and never really figured out how desperate you are for God. Well, I love the story that William Farley in this great book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, tells. I've passed this book around. Many of you probably remember this story, but it, it does illustrate this in the modern day. There I was, lying on my bed, wide awake, my eyes searching the dark bedroom ceiling for any sign of hope. Are you awake? I asked my wife, Judy. I can't sleep, she said. Is anything on your mind? 
I didn't need to ask. I knew the answer. Our daughter was on a date with a friend we did not approve of. It was after midnight. In addition, since this relationship had began, she began to be distant and obstinate and uncooperative and things were not well. I'm worried sick, my wife replied. I can't sleep. I reflect on the battles of recent weeks. My once compliant daughter had become difficult. Most distressingly, she showed little interest in Christ or spiritual things. The influence or new friend was not good. I reflected on the title of James Dobson's book, Parenting Isn't for Cowards. I was a coward and I needed courage and I needed hope and I had little. Where's my wa- Where is she? My wife asked. What are they doing? She's been so different lately. I'm worried sick. Anxiety, stress and fear dripped from her words. <clears throat> I'd not helped the situation, exasperated by my daughter's sullen rebellion. I'd even flirted with the idea of spanking her. My wife's common sense appeal brought me back to reality. It was a dark time. We were discouraged at the end of our resources. Maybe you felt the same way. But God used this dark period in our parenting to experience, to deeply humble us. And we are grateful. For 20 years, our parenting had been easy. What had most, we had what most would consider a model family. Sadly, we had begun to take pride in our parenting. We'd begun to look down on friends with troubled teens. God's word is clear. Pride goes before destruction. God opposes the proud. We were proud. The time for humbling had come and God opposed us through our daughter's problems and brought us to our knees. We spent much time in prayer and confession. Looking back, we realized it was a wonderful turning point. Even for them, when God brought their pride down because they realized that they need to be desperate for the Lord. Thankfully, our daughter also reached a turning point through this process in a filthy Calcutta hotel. Yes, India. Sick with the flu and desperately homesick, this beautiful young woman finally called out to Christ. Now, India is halfway around the world. It's not the cleanest place in the world. Dirty hotel room there. That's where God broke her. A year later, God brought her a wonderful, godly husband. At this writing, they have three attractive children and actively serve a local church. She's become a glorious gift to the church, to her husband, to her children, to our wider family. There's a great illustration, right? Manasseh in the Babylonian prison. William Farley's daughter in a hotel in Calcutta. God is a way of bringing us all to a point of desperation, wanting us to see the end of ourselves. And it may be happening for you in your own home. Maybe you don't have to go to Babylon. Maybe you don't have to go to India. Good news, if it happens right there in your own home. Maybe you've reached the point where you've cried out to the Lord. Maybe you haven't reached that point. I just encourage you, cry out to the Lord in a time when He has found And if you have cried out to the Lord, and if you have found in Him to be your healing balm, it doesn't mean it's over. What happens at conversion is desperation that's there, but then dependence comes after that, right? When you come to God, you need to come with desperation. When you walk with God, you need to walk with God with dependence. That's my second point this morning. Are you dependent? Are you desperate? Have you reached a point in your life where you call out to him? And that doesn't just end there. I mean, you can see William Farley, right? He and his wife were desperate in dealing with their daughter. It can continue on, desperation, but, but it, dependence might be a better word, that we're just depending upon the Lord every day for everything. I love the songs that, that Ryan chose for us today. I need thee every hour. Uh, it's a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. Children of the Heavenly Father, right? We safely in His bosom gather. Right, just, just, just 
cuddling up to our Heavenly Father who's going to help us. But my question here is, are you dependent? Now, this is really the same question. So I'm asking the same question twice, but a little, little, uh, little twist. Whereas, are you desperate? Kind of maybe it's more of a crisis word. Have you reached a crisis in your life? Are you dependent? This is like your, your continual action. What, how are you living day to day, regular sort of, of way? He calls us to live a life of dependency upon Him. When you think about it, we're really dependent upon God for everything. Paul said in Acts 17:28, "In Him we live and move and have our being. We have our being. We exist. We live. We move in God. You're dependent upon the Lord for every beat of your heart, for every breath you take." Job 34:15 and 6:14 and 15. If He should determine to do so, that is, if God would want to do so, if He would gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and men would be like dust. If God says, okay, life-giving Spirit, out of Rock Valley Bible Church, poof, we'd be dust. God sustains us every moment of the day. You're dependent upon the Lord not only for your every breath, but for your protection. Psalm 91, which we memorized this last summer, I think. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike a foot against a stone, protecting you even from the accidents that come. They protect you from all sorts of harm. And when acts of terror strike our country, it's only God's grace that keeps you from harm's way. When acts of terror don't happen more often, it's only God's common grace that keeps it so. I mean, you just think about what happened this week in, in Boston and why doesn't that happen all the time? With the freedoms we have in America, people strapping bombs on themselves, that could happen all the time. But you've got to realize that you're, you're dependent upon the Lord for protection. You pretend uh, depend upon the Lord for protection from disease. God brought plagues of disease to Egypt. Jesus removed the diseases. He can bring Disease, He can take away disease. And spiritually, I tell you, it's the same thing. We're dependent upon the Lord every aspect of our salvation. God gives His grace freely. He dispenses His mercy at His will. He sends forth His love. He grants repentance. He grants faith. And, and it's only because He extended that that we believe. And, and He's the only one who can extend forgiveness. He's the only one that can take away His wrath. And when it comes to our life, God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to comfort and help and encourage and guide us. So let's live lives of complete dependence upon the Lord, right? When you come to God, you need to come with desperation. When you walk with God, you need to walk with dependence. Let's look at James chapter 4. It's page 179 in the New Testament, way towards the end, almost the end of the Bible. James chapter 4. James just shows us how we ought to live with a daily dependence upon the Lord. James 4, let's start at verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
If the Lord wills, is what James tells us to say. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. That ought to be our mantra. That ought to be the banner that, that, that we proclaim. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Now, and, and not just say it with our mouths, but believe it with our, our hearts. I will arise and worship God this morning if the Lord wills. I will carry about my afternoon activities if the Lord wills. I will go to work on Monday if the Lord wills. I'll take my children to school on Tuesday if the Lord wills. I will attend my child's soccer game on Wednesday if the Lord wills. I will spend my time at home with my family on Thursday if the Lord wills. I will attend my small group on Friday if the Lord wills. I will work on my lawn Saturday if the Lord wills, if it stops raining anytime soon. All right? Now, you don't need to get caught up to be saying that every time. It's, 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 those are magical words. You don't need to do that. But you need to have that attitude in your heart that says, right, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.9 I'm going my way, but if the Lord wills, Lord, you direct my steps every moment of the day. Let me follow through. Complete dependence upon the Lord. That's what James is calling us to do. Whether grand plans, whether small plans, we just need to trust ourselves to God. Okay, turn back to Proverbs chapter 3, page 458 in your pew Bibles, the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 3. You know, oftentimes Proverbs, they just have a, a, a verse and then a different thought with the next verse, a different thought with the next verse, different thought with the next verse. They're kind of thrown together. But, but here in Proverbs 1 through 9, it, it reads more... Um, like an instruction manual, one thought builds upon another and builds upon another. And that's what we see in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. I know you know this well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. That's a call to depend upon the Lord all the time and in every way. Trusting the Lord with all of our heart. Trusting the Lord with all of our thinking. Giving honor completely to the Lord in other words, if God says it, I'm going to understand it. I'm going to rely upon what He has said. I'm not going to trust my own perceptions. And then there comes this wonderful promise. And He will make your paths straight. That is, your ways will be firm and established and steady. And I just say this, right? When God gives revelation, that's for our good. He has our best in mind. And so when he speaks, say, in the book of Proverbs about wisdom, about how to live, it's for our good in mind. When he calls upon us to believe in the Lord Jesus, it's for our good. It's for our help. It's for our counsel. And we see, right, the blessings coming in verse 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So don't think I've got it all figured out. Rather, right, fear God and turn away from evil so you pursue Him. Live in dependence upon Him. And if you do, there's promise of a blessing, healing to your bones, refreshment to your body. Submit yourself to the Lord. Walk in His wisdom and it will be well with you. Or the next two verses, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Then comes a blessing. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I mean, this is God's math. You give away from the first of your paycheck and God in turn will see He takes care of everything you need. See, God can take away. God can bless. 
And if you think that you're going to circumvent the system or you, you, need to, you need to keep some for yourself, all for yourself because you're so tight, I just say this, is that God can make your car run down tomorrow. But if you honor the Lord with the wealth and, and you give to Him, you give away, then what, what, what happens? Is that God says, oh, that car? <laughs> We're going to keep that thing going for another three years. Or that air conditioner is going to go out? We'll, 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 keep it, we'll keep it going for a while. Or that storm is going to hit your home? We'll just bypass your home. That's the way that God can bless and God can bless you even more than you give. So I just encourage you to honor the Lord with the first of all your produce. It's what verse 9 says. And to the extent that you can do so, I say do so and more and more and more and give and give and give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You want to receive the blessing from that. But that's an idea to trust in the Lord, right? We give, trusting in Him, and He then blesses us. How about John 15? Let's turn there. Page 85 in your few Bibles. And we're, we're here to, heading towards the home stretch here. John 15. And, and I'm just picking out a few verses. I mean, we could go to a lot more verses all over the Bible. This is the message of the Bible. To depend upon God. John 15. And we see Jesus putting forth this idea, the first part of the chapter, that He is the vine, we're the branches. The branches get nourishment from the vine. Without the vine, the branches die. Therefore, we need to be connected to the the vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it may bear more. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You never see a stick in the middle of a lawn bearing forth apples. It's always the stick that's attached to the tree, that's attached to the root that bears forth apples. So likewise, right? We need to be attached to Jesus to bear forth and do anything. In fact, look at what Jesus said at the end of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. I just say, let's, let's hear it afresh. Is that not a call to a dependent life? That apart from me, you can be no, do nothing? Right? We need to abide in Jesus. We need to be attached to Jesus. Or you might spin this another way. Right? Not apart from me, you can do nothing. That's two negatives. We can turn it both positives, right? We need Him to do anything. To do anything, we need Jesus. We need Him to take our next breath, our next step. We need Him to speak with our neighbor. If you're thinking about my message from last week about going, don't, don't try to go to neighbors or those around you or whatever. Maybe you're thinking about planning to reach out with the Gospel. Don't... Don't do that on your own strength because Jesus says you need to do it through me. You need Him to speak with your neighbor. You need Him to raise your children. You need Him to stir in our hearts for affection towards the Lord. We need Jesus to do anything. That's a call to the dependent life, right? In order to walk with God, you need to walk with dependence. So you say, okay, how does this work practically, Steve? How does it go? I think Paul gives us some very practical counsel this is our last text before we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's an expression just of our dependence upon the Lord after this. First, Corinthians, First Thessalonians chapter 5, page 161 in your pew Bibles. 
We're going to look near the end of the chapter, verses 16, 17, and 18. Three short commands that help us to see how to live the dependent life. Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Joy, prayer, and thanks. All the time, in every circumstance. All the time, in every circumstance, joy. All the time, in every circumstance, prayer. All the time, in every circumstance, gratitude. Joy, because our contentment is in the Lord, come what may. Prayer, because our trust is in the Lord, not in ourselves. Thankfulness, because we know all of God's ways are best, even when you can't see the good. The hymn writer says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Kids, in your notes, you can write a, make it a little smiley. I took off the mouth. You make a big, nice smile for me to see after my message. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, right? Things are coming dark now, but they will turn. Well, I tell you, I was blessed this week by my neighbor Jeff. Um... Because of the rains and an unplugged sump pump, they had water in the basement. What day is that? Thursday? I forget. And when you have water in your basement, your entire life changes. It means that day you've got to get the water out. The week means you're going to dry everything out. And then that next month, putting it all back to normal. It's, it's one little time that affects everything. Water in the basement is a bummer. And I know, Jeff, you're disappointed and you confess you didn't respond perfectly. But here's the thing. I was so blessed with what you said, Jeff. You said something like this. We're standing in your basement. You said, Steve, I'm thankful for the flooding in my basement. Now, I don't know why I'm thankful, but I'm thankful. Because God does what's right, and for some reason it's come, I'm thankful. And, and I say, Jeff, I, I was encouraged because what, what you said is a right response, and it, it's so demonstrated your heart to walk this way. And it helped me as well to just say, you know what, we can, in difficult circumstances, trust the Lord for all things. Even when it's dark, we can trust the Lord and be thankful. So I appreciate that, Jeff. Let's remember that everything comes from God and not of ourselves. So let's be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Let's remember that everything, everyone who we are, Everything that we are comes not from ourselves. It comes from God. There's a reason to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. God has never entitled us to a life of comfort, abundance, and trouble-free living. Rather, He's called us to a life of dependence upon Him. What does He call us? We are His servants, right? We ought to be about doing the Master's will, any blessing that comes upon us. And there's great blessing is gravy. So how do you do this? How, how are you to be... Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks always. Well, last year in our small groups, we read through this book, The Praying Life. And I know it impacted many of you. And, and Paul Miller in this book recommended that we, we say breath prayers. I didn't learn continuous prayer. I discovered I was already doing it. So I'm not going to teach anything to them. I'm just going to say, this is probably how you're living right now if you're a believer and trusting in Christ. 
I found myself in difficult situations I could not control and all I could do was cry out to my Heavenly Father. It happened so often enough that it became a habit creating a rut between my soul and God. I discovered myself praying simple two and three word prayers such as teach me or help me Jesus. The Psalms are filled with this type of short bullet prayer. Praying simple one-word prayers or a verse of Scripture takes the pressure off. Think about this. Because we don't have to sort out exactly what we need. Paul tells us, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Often we're too weary to figure out what the problem is. We just know that life, including ours, doesn't work. And so we pray. Father, 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 Jesus, or help, or teach me, or, or guide me, or help, or move their hearts. Or, this is the kind of thing that should happen all the time. You know, when Nehemiah went and went in and talked with the king because he had a sorrowful face, it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, I think it's verse 4, uh, I'm not quite right, it says that Nehemiah, right before he spoke, he says he prayed to the Lord and spoke. I think he's, he only had time, if you read that, just to say, help me God, and then he spoke. And I, I think if you get a chance to reach out to neighbors or talk with other people, just be doing that. Just say, God, help me. Help me to choose the right words. Help me to say it. While you're, while you're just breath prayers, every breath we take, just to God, help. Thank you. Rejoicing you. Praise God. And just let that be how you live. You need to catch this. This is the exact opposite of Eastern mysticism, which is a psycho-spiritual technique that disengages from relationship and escapes pain by dulling self. Eastern mystics are trying to empty their minds to become one with a non-personal all. But as Christians, we realize we can't cure ourselves, so we cry out to our Father, our primary relationship, for Him to help. It's not an emptying of the mind, but it's just a constant, God, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. And I think that's how we can every day live a dependent life. You know, it's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who realize they don't have resources themselves. They need help. The poor in spirit are constantly seeking help from the Lord. The poor in spirit are living a dependent life. And the promise is this, Matthew 5, verse 3. There's the kingdom of heaven. So are you poor in spirit? Are you broken? Are you depending upon God every moment of the day? Are you desperate? Are you dependent? It's my heart for us at Rock Valley Bible Church. It's the path to the kingdom of heaven. It's the desperate who cry out to the Lord who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the dependent who are poor in spirit who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I just say, may the Lord teach us of these things. You know, if the Lord has pricked your heart in any of these things, I encourage you to maybe find someone today and pray with them. I'm I'm certainly open and welcome to that. I know Darren and Phil would be as well. Uh, Other people just... Just really maybe God has touched your heart to, to pray and trust the Lord. I, I just hope it stirs within us at Rock Valley Bible Church. This spirit of, of not arrogance, okay, not self-sufficiency, but of total dependence upon the Lord. Well, let's pray. Lord, I, I know that this is my burden, how blind we can be, even as I confessed earlier, being blind to eating. 
being blind to be able to point the finger at others and telling them they're not desperate when I myself am not desperate. So, Lord, I pray now as Your Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, it pierces between soul and spirit of joints and marrow. I pray that You would pierce deep within. God, and show us where we lack dependence and show us where we are self-sufficient. Show us where we are like the proud Pharisee that thanks You that we are are righteous in of ourselves. Teach us the path to You is a low path of desperation and total dependence. The dependent one relies on someone else or something to help. And so, Father, I pray that You would teach us to walk with crutches. That You would teach us to lie in the gurney as You take us along through this life because we need Your help. We can't do it on our own. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would do that God, realizing what we have on earth and what we have in heaven and that all of our desire might be placed on You, as Asaph said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but You? And beside You I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from You will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to You. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God, may that be our hearts, that we desire you more than anything. And that, that's why it's easy for us to be desperate because we know that you are all. It's easy for us to be dependent because we are weak. And as you told Paul, refusing to take the thorn out of his flesh says, when you are weak, then you are strong. So I pray we'd realize that, God, that our strength really comes not through being strong in ourselves, but being strong in You. And so strengthen us, O Lord, to see these things, to know these things, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, God, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. So teach us where the battle is and teach us our attitudes we need to fight that battle. And as we're desperate, we will likewise bring into the fold others who are desperate and dependent as well. So Lord, also as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may this be an act of dependence upon, upon You. We celebrate this because You have told us to take the bread and eat the bread and take the cup and drink from it. For they are symbols, God, of everything You accomplished for us. Thank You for Jesus Christ who alone accomplished our redemption who bore our sins in His body upon the cross. Who knew sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Who bore upon His shoulders all our sins and all our iniquities. And, and Lord, as we celebrate this, and we celebrate as a profession of our faith in You, that we've come to a place of desperation and that we are dependent upon You. And so, Lord, may You help us in this process. And I just say a word to those of you visiting among us. If Christ is not your Savior, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not desperate and dependent, just let the bread and cup pass because it's, it's a declaration that, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus. And if that's not for you, that's okay. We're glad to have you. But I encourage you this day even to turn and repent. And Father, so we, we pray that you might be glorified in this hour as we do what you have called us to do in remembering you 
and your death. Be glorified among us, O Lord, we pray. Amen.